Well, good morning, everyone. Lovely to be here with you this morning and to be sharing from God's Word. It would be very helpful if you have a Bible, as um, Dan has said, to have that open. I'm going to bring up uh, during the talk um, various other verses, but the main text I'm going to rely upon you to have open in front of you. So uh, if you need a Bible, good time to grab one at the back, um, or otherwise on your phone or whatever. Well, this is the, the Sunday after Easter, which in my, my former Anglican upbringing, I think they called Low Sunday. Uh, it's often a little bit down after all the, the festivities of, of the Easter weekend. So I thought we'd have a, a passage that, that perhaps in some ways gives us a, uh, a big picture perspective on the death and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, God's bigger purposes for the world. Uh, so this passage which we're going to look at today, it's the transfiguration. And I think that's often a passage that many Christians find quite puzzling. It sort of sits somewhere in the middle of all the, all the miracles and, and good works and preaching and teaching that Jesus was doing. Um, and we often sort of maybe wonder a little bit what it's all about. So we're going to look at the transfiguration and the death and resurrection of Jesus, all in a, if you like, a, a whole Bible, God's big story sort of context. Well, if... Um, I think coming up on the screen, is, is it working, John? Yeah? Yeah, there we are. Um, so if we move to the, the first picture, uh, a well-known face you'll see there, at this time of conflict that we've had in Ukraine, we are seeing the dangers of human beings seeking their own vain glory. There's a good example. And if we look at the next picture, we see some of the consequences of when that seeking after vain glory really takes off. Uh, that's one of the bombs hitting one of the buildings in Ukraine. And then the consequences in the next picture, we see so much innocent suffering arise as a result of human seeking, humans seeking after their own vain glory. But the Bible's perspective on glory is rather different. Not only in the way, all the way through Old and New Testament, including the story that Ruth read to the children earlier, the story of the Ten Commandments and all this noise and power on, on the mountain. Not only in the way God is described as all-powerful, all-glorious throughout the whole Bible, and the way the risen, ascended Lord Jesus is also called glorified, and he's living glorified now. But the way the Bible actually presents spectacular glory as not just being something that belongs to God. It's actually something that as believers ultimately will belong to us as well, because the destiny of everyone who is joined to Jesus is glory. So what does this glory look like? We so often think of, of human glory, our own glory, as being a bad thing because of what happens with people like Putin 
Um, and of course, when it is fueled by pride, by sin, by greed, then seeking human glory is a terrible, it's a really ugly thing. It's, it's an obscene parody of what God's glory in us should look like. But our glorification, the process of us becoming more glorious in the sense of reflecting the glory of God, that is an integral part of God's salvation plan for all of us. So it's not something we should despise in any way. We just have to get the perspective right. And it's something that, as Christians, we will receive freely, humbly. It's one of God's many gifts of his grace, is for us to be made glorious. And in fact, the Bible tells us that spectacular glory in the future is what awaits us when Christ comes again at the end of our lives for those who are joined to Jesus and only for those who are joined to Jesus. One day we won't just see Jesus in all his glory, but we will actually share in his glory. The glory will be upon us as well. So I think we should just stop and ask, well, what do we mean by the glory of God? It's a, a term we just tend to use, but what do we really mean by it? Well, I think Martin actually provided a very helpful way of looking at this back in the, the 1 Corinthians series, oh, what's that, three years or so ago, um, where he described the glory of God being the character of God. You could say it's the attributes of God, the nature of God, his holiness, his righteousness, his compassion, his grace, his mercy, his love, his creativity, all of those things that are the attributes of God made visible. Not hidden away, but made visible for everyone to see. The glory of God is, is the nature of God made visible. And what the Bible says is that ultimately that perfect nature of God won't just be made visible in God, but ultimately will be made visible in us when we are perfected and made glorious when Christ comes again. So it's a very big part of God's whole big story of salvation. It's the ultimate destiny for us. So let's just quickly review what is God's big story in relation to glory. Well, back at the creation, men and women were made to share in God's glory here on earth, to reflect that nature of God. That's what we mean by for us to be glory, reflectors of his glory. That's how we were created in Genesis. And God crowned us with glory and honor. In Psalm 8, David expressed that. He said, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You've made them a little lower than the angels. 
In fact, in the verse that he says, a little lower than Elohim, a little lower than God himself, and crowned humans with glory and honor. But of course, in Genesis 3, we fell, we disobeyed God, and we fell from the glory that he had created us to reflect. We were no longer the people we should be. As Paul says in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet we still retain some little measure of God's image within us, even after the fall. Genesis 9, 6 makes that clear. But the glory of God is, is badly tainted. That's why we confess our sins and try to start again with God. And for centuries, destruction, self-destruction marked the human race. Mankind limped along in this faded, reflected glory of God, unable to recreate for ourselves the long-lost glory of God that we were supposed to reflect. We created vain glory for ourselves through personal power-mongering and collective empire. We've, we've thought about the war in Ukraine now, but in Bible times, there were the Medes and the Persians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, then the Romans, all power-mongering for glory in themselves. And today, it's just the same, except that the weapons are perhaps a little more potentially destructive. And then, after all these centuries of of reflecting so poorly the glory of God, the nature of God in us. Then at a point in history, in the Roman Empire, 2,000 years ago, God broke into the world to fix it. In the human person of Jesus of Nazareth. He came to dwell amongst us, to live a perfect God-glorifying life. Partly as an example to us, but, but as far more than just as an example to us. To obey those ten commandments that we were so unable to follow and to save ourselves from. As Paul says in Colossians, he, that's Jesus, is the perfect image of the invisible God. The character of God made visible, made manifest in Jesus and Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, puts this perfectly. It says, we see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while. In other words, he became a human like us. For a little while, now crowned with glory and honor. And why? Hmm, because he suffered death. That doesn't sit right, does it? Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Yet we know death couldn't hold on to him, and he had the victorious resurrection that we celebrated last Sunday. And we celebrate every Sunday, because it's, it's the heart of our faith that death could not hold on to him. Jesus then also, finally, perfectly fulfilled that verse in Psalm 8, crowned us with glory and honor, we couldn't crown ourselves very easily. Couldn't at all. But Jesus, he was totally human, totally God. And he, as a human, was crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because 
he suffered death. And as you go through the Bible, you find again and again and again this connection is made between suffering and glory. All over the Bible, it comes up, suffering and glory. Starts with the death and resurrection of Jesus himself, but then it extends to embrace all of us who are joined with him through faith. Because Jesus is the author, the beginning, and the perfecter, the completer of our faith. He's gone before us in God's great glorification project of those who are followers of him, who are his people. He's first, we follow. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 says, And we all who contemplate the Lord's glory, believers, who contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. God's purpose in us is to make us evermore be like him and like we should have been from the beginning had we not sinned. In our life of faith and with the Holy Spirit living within, we can start in small ways to reflect the glory of Christ, the nature of Christ, the nature of the Father in ever-increasing measure in our daily lives as we seek to follow him, in our words, in our actions, yes, even in our faces, reflecting the glory of Christ. But what of the future? There's a promise of so much more to come. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 41 and 42. That anticipates this spectacular future glory that is coming to us who believe. In the resurrection of the dead, Paul writes, the body that is sown is perishable, the mortal body. It's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Our glorification will come to an explosive consummation when Christ comes again. And Paul, in various letters then describes what our lives that we have now here on earth are. He says they are a light momentary affliction that is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. Think about that. A light momentary affliction, the troubles of this life, compared with glory in eternity. He says, consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us later. And one day, the glorified God-man Christ Jesus, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. So by the end of God's big story, we've gone a full circle, hence the title of the sermon, We were created at the beginning to be a people reflecting God's glory. At the end, through the salvation of Christ, we will be made glorious again as we were meant to be. From glory to glory. But what's in the middle? Suffering. Suffering in Christ and suffering for many of his people. That is the plan of salvation. And we need to recognize that. 
God's big story is the story of our glory lost and our glory restored and all that happens in the here and now. So how does this relate to Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 to 13, this story of of this brief showing of Christ's glory while he was still here on earth? Well, I believe this, this, if you like, big story picture of salvation provides the framework that makes this passage make sense. Because I recognize for many of us, the transfiguration is, is a bit of a puzzle. Why did it happen? What did it mean? So we come to a first point, the suffering of Christ. You see, to unpack the transfiguration in Matthew 17, verses 1 to 13, I believe we need to back up into chapter 16 and see what 16 says, the verses immediately before. Context is always a good principle when trying to understand the Bible. So if we uh, just bring the map up, John, you can see where this is all happening. This is a picture of the northern part of Israel. And so you've got the Sea of Galilee, I think, um, yes, um, sort of in the middle. And then up the top, you can see where it says Mount Hermon. That's up at the very northern tip of Israel. And that's where chapters 16 and 17 of Matthew are all taking place. That becomes important in a minute. This is happening near a town of, called Caesarea Philippi, a Roman garrison town. It's in what is known now as the Golan Heights, right up in that very far northern tip of Israel. And in chapter 16 and verse 13, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, Still others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. These were great forerunners of Jesus who boldly proclaimed the message they were given from God. And they were also people, every one of them, who suffered for standing up for God's way in their time. And when asked, Simon Peter then makes his great famous confession of Jesus' identity. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then verse 21, Jesus moves on to the next stage of engaging with his disciples. Right, he says, you've understood that. So he starts to teach them that he must suffer, that he must be killed. But on the third day, he'll rise again from the dead. I think they were so taken aback with hearing he was going to die, they didn't even hear the bit about resurrection. They were just stunned. Verses 22 and 23 of chapter 16, they can't understand or accept what he is saying. That wasn't the kind of Messiah they were after. They wanted someone who would give them freedom. They wanted a Messiah who would get rid of these Roman oppressors. That was their plan of salvation. Not that he should die. And then he goes on a step further in verses 24 and follows. He then says, I'm now going to tell you what the cost of being my disciple will be. It's not only me that's going to die. It's probably going to be you as well. You must be willing to suffer. You must be willing to pay the cost. You must be willing even to die for being my disciple. That is how the Messiah comes in, the Messiah that God has in mind. It's no coincidence that that conversation 
is then followed by this passage with the transfiguration in Matthew's account. You see, Matthew is setting out what will be the pattern for Christ's kingdom as it comes. A pattern that is still in place today. The pathway is suffering first, glory later, and don't look for the shortcuts. The heavenly glory and the shameful cross, they sit together in a a jarring juxtaposition in the gospel message. They are in an uncomfortable counterpoint with one another. And again, we mustn't run away from that. Verse 28 of chapter 16, Jesus says to those who are standing there, some of you will not die until you have seen the Son of Man coming again in his kingdom. Well, many of those followers would, be, would live to be the eyewitnesses of his crucifixion, of his resurrection, of his ascension, of the Spirit coming in power at Pentecost, of the growth of the early church all across the world. But they would almost all of them give up their lives in the process. His glorious kingdom would be built upon the sufferings of Christ and the sufferings of his people. And we too must be prepared to suffer for Christ. John, if you can put the next one up, please. We must be prepared to suffer too. This is a famous quote from the end of the second century, Tertullian. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And we can look across many parts of the world where that is true still today. Suffering and glory must move hand in hand together forwards to fulfill God's great plan for the world. Our suffering is not, of course, to achieve salvation. Christ has done that. He did everything, the full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction as the communion service in the Book of Common Prayer says, he's done everything that's needed, but the suffering is to build Christ's kingdom in our generation. The one thing, if you like, uh, that is lacking in Christ's salvation is our suffering. That bit's up to us to make the kingdom come. Are we ready for that? So the suffering of Christ is essential for the glory of Christ. So we now move to the second point, which is the glory of Christ. Matthew 17, verses 1 to 5. Now, 17 verse 1 says, six days later. That's a very precise time. But what it, the re, when you get these precise time links, it's making sure you realize that this and the thing that's just gone before are actually closely associated. It doesn't just say sometime when Jesus was going along in another area. That's when you've moved to something new. We're in the same area here. And it closely links these predictions of Christ's suffering with this foretaste of his glory. So if we bring the other map up next, that's a zoomed in map of the one I showed earlier of this northern area. And you can see Caesarea Philippi is just at the foot of this large mountain called Mount Hermon. And very likely, this is the mountain that Jesus went up 
with the disciples to pray because he'd been in Caesarea Philippi and then they went up the mountain in that area. He went there to be with his father and he went there to be sure that this pathway of suffering really was the way he had to go. And it was the only way to the victory and the glory that was needed to restore the kingdom. So in the next picture, you see actually what um, photo I captured. That's what Mount Hermon looks like, at least in the winter. So you can see it's, it's a big mountain. It goes up to about 9,000 feet, and it towers above Caesarea Philippi. And on that mountain is where the suffering servant and the glorious Messiah are seen together. Christ's self-sacrifice and God's salvation shed light on the true glory of the kingdom of God. Verse 2 says, up on that mountain, Jesus' face shone like the sun. His clothes became white like dazzling light. It's obviously something very supernatural. It's very similar to the vision that John had of the victorious ascended Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1, where Christ was walking among the candles, among the churches, uh, moving around in the seven churches. It gave the disciples a little preview of what Christ will look like to the world when he comes again in glory to be the judge of all things. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter wrote simply, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He must have been looking back at this event. And John, in his gospel, uh, in the next, next verse that comes up, a famous verse that we have in the prologue of John's gospel, John wrote, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, full of the, the nature, the character of the Father himself. We saw it, he says. When did they so supremely see it? It was on this mountain of transfiguration. Well, we may not be able to see Jesus in this way now, but we can still enjoy our relationship with him through prayer, through Bible reading, through worship, through being with other fellow believers. We can build up our knowledge of who he is and what he has done from the Bible, but we then need to build that into a relationship with him. You see, our vision of Christ can be far too small. Christ can be, dare I say, like a slightly better version of us. It's how we can see him. What we kind of want ourselves to be is how we imagine he is. It's too small a vision. We feel we carry him around in our pockets or our handbags and, and we dial him up whenever we need him, a bit like we look up things on our mobile phones. We can have that kind of vision of him. It's far too small. This transfiguration experience would have been enough to stun the three disciples. But then to add to it, these two Old Testament characters appear. What's that about? They mysteriously step into the scene. It's not quite clear how the disciples knew who they were, but maybe they were dressed in appropriate clothing that gave them the hint or something. But clearly they did know. 
And then Simon Peter, kind of almost bizarrely, he offers to make them a shelter. Shelters for all three of them. Well, I suppose looking at that picture we had of the mountain, okay, that was probably in winter, but, but even so, at 9,000 feet, it can be quite cold. So maybe it was simply the culture of hospitality was, was the only thing he could do, go back to his default mode and offer hospitality to these people because it was a bit cold. Um, who did we have here? Moses, the supreme lawgiver, the liberator of his people, and Elijah, the mighty prophet from the Old Testament. Both of them had experienced their finest hours on mountaintops. Moses receiving the Ten Commandments at Sinai, as we read this morning very aptly. Elijah doing battle with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Both were harbingers of divine revelation, telling us about God in their particular time. Their presence marks Jesus out as their successors in the, in, the, in the story. The next and indeed greatest one in God's big story of salvation and glory. Both Moses and Elijah had made rather unusual departures from this life. At the end of Deuteronomy it says Moses died but no one knew where he was buried. It seems as though God buried him himself, nobody did it. And Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind to heaven. And though they searched, no one could find him, says 2 Kings chapter 2. Well, Elijah's dramatic exit had led in, in Israel at that time to a prophetic hope that one day Elijah would return. And that when he came, that would signal the end of time and the coming of the kingdom. Matthew had already earlier on in, in his gospel identified John the Baptist as being the new Elijah. In Matthew chapter 11, he writes this. And Jesus then goes on and explains that more in verses 9 to 13. And he alludes to this well-known prophecy from Malachi. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, where Malachi, remember Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament before the 400 years of silence before Christ breaks into the world. And Malachi writes, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He'll turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to the parents. It will change the world. This Elijah. Jesus is now simply reaffirming that the recently beheaded John the Baptist, that John the Baptist is the Elijah that is being referred to by Malachi. In other words, that, that prophecies were being fulfilled. It was all coming together in him. Like Elijah, John had come preaching a hard message of repentance from sin. And like so many of the prophets, what happened? He suffered. And he was killed for standing up for justice and righteousness of God. And now he, Jesus, was taking up the baton. It's what he'd been talking about in chapter 16. Jesus, he says in verse 12, will now face the same fate. But for Jesus, it won't be the end of the story because Jesus is different. Uniquely, he will rise again 
from the dead. He won't just be another fallen hero. He'll be the the salvation of everyone. He will reign in the power and glory of the Father. The transfiguration is there for a pledge. It's like a deposit, a down payment for us to see that he, Jesus, by his death and by his resurrection, would achieve and would fulfill that prophecy going back to Malachi and the Old Testament. Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And then, verse 5, we read a cloud comes down. Well, again, go back right back into Exodus. So often when clouds come down, that's a symbol in the Old Testament of God's majestic presence, that he is there. Moses and Elijah are gone. The forerunners have done their part. They can now fade away to their eternal rest. Only the glorious Lord Jesus remains there on the mountain to continue the mission to the world. And as if the presence of Moses and Elijah hadn't been enough validation of Christ's forthcoming mission and uh, ability to be saviour, the voice of God himself then booms out in testimony to Jesus, his son. The father settles the matter completely. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Elijah. The father affirms two things. He loves the son with total love. And he's well pleased with the son. He delights in the son. The son is the one who is perfectly reflecting the glory of the father. The one who perfectly carries out and lives out the nature of God. And the voice of God says the same two things at Jesus' baptism back in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17 at the beginning of his ministry when the Holy Spirit came down upon him to begin ministry. So this is a reaffirmation as Christ prepares to face Calvary and death and resurrection. The Father declares his love and approval of the Son. And you know, centuries before, Isaiah spoke words from God about the future suffering servant. Isaiah 42 verse 1, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. It should have been the nation of Israel, God's people, us, that were the chosen ones he delighted in. But all through the centuries, through sin, we'd failed. But in Christ, it was achieved. And then in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, commenting years afterwards, Peter, the eyewitness of the transfiguration, he then affirmed that he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. The power of an eyewitness testimony that this really happened. God's final words to the disciples, and yes, to every one of us, about the glorious Lord Jesus is clear and simple. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. And that's still his instruction today. 
Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You'll desire to keep my commandments. And ultimately, as we transform and become more like the glory of God, we'll find that we can um, obey his commandments. So there's a promise and an instruction built into that. And it's not just the easy commandments. It's easy to say, oh, those ones are easy, we'll do those. But it's the tough ones as well that we need to take on board. Jesus said, not everyone that calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only what? He who does the will of my Father. There's some intent needed here to do the will of the Father, not just to sit and bask in the glory of the Father. And doing the will may mean suffering, putting yourself out, sacrificing in different ways. It's a divine call to obedience to Christ and to his teaching. Listen to him. Listen to him. And then finally, the, the rest of the passage, the compassion of Christ, verses 6 to 9. At this point, the disciples moved, when this voice sounded out, from offering hospitality to sheer terror. And you can understand it when voices start booming out. They fell down before the Lord of glory, just as Moses and Elijah had fallen down before the Lord and were in awe on Sinai and on Mount Carmel. What does Jesus do and say? Get up. Don't be afraid. It's one of the commonest things he actually says in in the Gospels. Don't be afraid. Get up. Words of care Words of compassion. This is the same glorious Christ. Then and now. The Lord of comfort. The Lord of compassion. The Lord of mercy. Who says, get up. Don't be afraid. They had caught a wee glimpse of the transcendent glory of Christ. And they were awestruck. But now as they descended the mountainside, all they could see was the familiar face of Jesus once again, who loved and cared for them so much, who walked with them day by day. A man like them, yet without sin. The glory had just been temporary this time. Christ's mission of salvation was not yet done. In fact, his suffering all still lay ahead. But he knew from his prayer time that that was the way of God. And he was telling them too that they must walk in his ways, walk in his footsteps. Only after that power of suffering, that pathway of suffering, sorry, could that glory be experienced. For Christ and for them. And yes, perhaps also for us as well. Matthew gives us the wonderful prospect in chapter 13, verse 43, that at the final judgment, he says, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear, i.e. flagging up, this is important. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's a promise. Who are the righteous? Those who trust in Christ, who receive his righteousness. 
You see, the transfiguration wasn't just a temporary stripping away of Jesus' veneer of humanity to expose this sort of glowing core inside him of glory, the divinity underneath. No, it was a foretaste of what the glorious human body that he would have in the resurrection and after ascension was going to be when he descended to heaven, when he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And it's the same glorified human body from 1 Corinthians 15, the same glorified human body that all believers will receive. We will share with him when we are fully glorified too. That's a promise in the new heaven and the new earth when everything is made new. On that day, we will not see the transfigured Christ like they did, but we will be transfigured with him. That's what the the implication in all these verses is saying. Look at 1 John 3 verse 2. When Christ appears, we shall truly be like him, for we will see him as he is. The Bible describes this great salvation story, created from dust, having dominion over the world, self-destruction through sin, redemption through Christ's suffering and death, and then transformation from glory to glory. In fact, Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, in, in the letter to Laodicea, it says we will even share the very throne itself with the Father and the Son in heaven. We will be taken up into the glory of the new creation and it will all be by his grace. But in the meantime, in this broken world we live in, could you show the next picture please? This was taken by me in Malawi about four weeks ago following the cyclone out there. This is the broken world we live in. A family of children with a broken house husband and wife with baby and with, with broken house. Hold on a sec, John. That's the, that's the broken world that we live in, suffering and loss. So how can we make that glory even start to shine through now? By the way we live, by the things we do, here as well as across the world. If we go to the next one, we did an, an appeal and got some aid to help these people out in, in, in two or three days. And that was when we were distributing buckets, polythene sheets to give shelter. Uh, and I had the honor of being part of that team just doing that. And that just was one of the most moving days I've had in all my times in Malawi. Showing the character of Christ by doing what Jesus was doing with people like that when he was walking on earth. We can do that and show that glory. And then the final one, by preaching and proclaiming the gospel. And that's a schoolroom of people who've been washed out of their homes in Malawi. And I had the honor of giving a gospel message of hope. And that's people giving their lives to Christ. That's how we can bring the glory of Christ, even in the midst of the dirtiness and brokenness of this world now. By, by teaching others about him and by showing the love and compassion that Christ did in his ministry, by being Christ to them. Amen.